0: Our Gospel lesson this day comes from the 8th chapter of John. I'll let you hear these words. Early in the morning, Jesus returned to the temple. All the people gathered around him, and he sat down and taught them. The legal experts and Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. Placing her in the center of the group, they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of committing adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone women like this. What do you say? They said this to test him, because they wanted a reason to bring an accusation against him. Jesus bent down and wrote on the ground with his finger. They continued to question him, so he stood up and replied, whoever hasn't sinned should throw the first stone. Bending down again, he wrote on the ground. Those who heard him went away one by one, beginning with the elders. Finally, only Jesus and the woman were left in the middle of the crowd. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Is there no one to condemn you? She said, no one, sir. Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, don't sin anymore. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. O Lord, let the words of my mouth and the thoughts and meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. For you, O oh Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Throughout the past couple of weeks, I've been emphasizing each week that this struggle that we have with guilt is a real one. First, we talked about the problem of high anthropology or the problem of when we think too highly either of ourselves or of humans' capability In general, the limitations that we have, each of us, the doubleness that we experience where we think we want to do one thing but yet we do the other, and the self-centeredness that we all have. We also talked about that there is no way for us to reach up to God and somehow achieve perfection, climbing some imaginary ladder up to God, but rather that God comes to us and is among us. And we focused also then that our view of God, how we look at God and think about God, actually informs the way that we view ourselves and we view the world. And so we talked last week about whether we view God as kind of cosmic judge or if we view God as friend who comes among us and how that affects how we think about ourselves and the world. So there's no doubt that these cycles of guilt that we have are real. And I've talked with a bunch of you who have told me throughout the weeks, like, oh, I haven't thought of it that way, or that explains some things to me, or at least it made me think about how I think about my relationship with God. We understand the predicament that we are in. We feel this weight of being never enough in our culture. So today I want to begin answering this question. How do I get and move past this guilt, right? So if we've if we've established that, yeah, this guilt thing is, is a problem that a lot of us have, how, how do I begin to, to move past it? And I think the first answer today that I'd like to give to that is this. It's called self-compassion. And it starts actually with Jesus. Jesus, right, when he's asked, what is the greatest commandment? He says, love the Lord your God. He quotes Deuteronomy 6 to so the people asking. him. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and your strength. And he said, then the second command is like it, right? And he said, love your neighbor as yourself. Right? Jesus didn't just say, love your neighbor, but rather he was quoting the Old Testament saying, love your neighbor as yourself. The implication actually is that there must be some love or compassion toward ourselves. And friends, we have a particularly good knack of not having self-compassion in our world today and in our lives Maybe you'll recognize some of these trends we have away from self compassion. One is beating ourselves up. Beating ourselves up. Kristen Neff, who has written a great deal, she's a social scientist, written about this concept of self compassion. And I want you to think of it as a different term than like self esteem. We're not talking about the same thing, we're talking about just an ability, an ability to look at ourselves and have compassion on the person that we see. She writes, Self-compassion involves being touched by one's own suffering, generating the desire to alleviate one's suffering, and treat oneself with understanding and concern. In other words, how we look at people and feel pity for them, we might look at ourselves and feel that same compassion towards ourselves. Now that is not self-justification for just doing whatever we want and being okay with ourselves. It's not that. Nor is it just wallowing in our own kind of self-pity. It's not the same thing as that. Rather, it's the ability that we could have to almost stand outside of ourselves for a moment and have pity upon that person and, and compassion on that person that we see so that we could actually move past whatever we are going through. The second way that we don't have compassion on ourselves is one we've talked about, but it's never reaching the expectations that we set up for ourselves. This is that concept that has been undergirding this entire series, never enough. David Zoll, in his book, in his book, Low Anthropology, he says, if you think your only hope for happiness or betterment lies within you, then you'll give up when your limitations are revealed or when your capacities expire with age. If, on the other hand, you accept those fallibility." those fallibilities while well, everything is gravy. The world is your playground and setbacks are nothing more than par for the course." So in other words, if we don't, don't grasp that we all have limitations, then we're always going to venture into this kind of beating ourselves up. We will always be never enough about whatever thing it is. But if instead we can grasp the fact that we are human, that we need things like sleep, and that we need things like relationships, uh, and we need things uh, like food, uh, and, and then we can accept that we are limited creatures, uh, then, then we might have the possibility of compassion towards ourselves. A third thing I like to describe as a way in which we don't have self-compassion is what I'd call the shouldas. And my grandpa, he, he, he was really good at talking about the shouldas. He He would say, he, when, when you would start saying like I should have done something and regret it and, and regret it, he said, "Well, I've always wanted to write a book. I should have started that book." And, and so he, he would he would he would riff on that and talk about it. But it's it's like the shouldas is a time to live in the regret over what we didn't do. And when we live back in the past like that, we get to play a ping pong game with ourselves between guilt and anxiety. And so we're feeling guilty about what we didn't do, and then we're anxious about how we didn't do that and we regret it. And then we go back to feeling guilty about it again. And it's really a nice game that goes on amongst ourselves. I don't know if you've ever been part of that game with yourself, Um, but if you have, uh, or if that resonates with you, um, I welcome you to listen in to this idea about having compassion on ourselves. I start there with compassion because usually when we think about compassion, we're thinking about others. We're thinking about how we look upon others, and how we offer care to them, how we offer sympathy towards them. But my argument today is that compassion really is the ultimate form of self-awareness, and we cannot get there unless we have had compassion upon ourselves first. Jesus demonstrates this kind of ultimate compassion and self-awareness in the story from John 8, right? So here's what the Pharisees and the scribes come to Jesus, right? They've literally caught a woman in adultery, right? Which, like, I don't need to draw up for you. And and so they come to Jesus, and they basically want him to lay out, to lay out, like, let's get the death penalty upon her, and we want we want to hear you say it, and, like, why don't we just go ahead and stone her right now so we'll put her in the middle of the group. And Jesus, right, he's down on the ground, and he, they, it describes him as writing... He's like riding in the ground, in the sand, right? Which is basically a Jesus move to say like, I'm not going to deal with you on your plane, Pharisees and scribes, right? Like, I'm not going to pay attention. They say like, hey, what do you want us to do with her, right? Does Jesus answer their question? No, not really, because that's how Jesus rolls, right? And so then he says, whoever's without sin, cast the first stone. Then what does he go back to doing? Drawing on the ground again, right? To essentially say like, I'm done with you. Right? And, and and we're not gonna deal on this level that you want to deal with. Jesus treats the scribes and the Pharisees equally as he treats the woman who's caught in adultery. He treats them as human beings who can understand and grasp the power of sin. I want us to think about compassion in this way. When my six year old comes to me and talks to me about how there's a kid in class who wasn't behaving. Or who was acting up, or who maybe even was picking on her, right? The way in which I talk to her usually goes like this, right? Let's think about what's going on in their life. Maybe they're having a really rough time at home, or maybe there's other things going on in their life that we don't know about. Now, of course, I'm going to talk to her about like talking to the teacher if there's a problem, you know, all, all of the things. But but I have no problem to connect for a six-year-old trying to help have compassion and think about the context of that other kid in the class. So why does context then not matter once we become adults, right? We don't think necessarily right away about what the other person is going through. We just think they're a jerk, right? Um, Devin Price, an author talking about homelessness said this. He said, if a person's behavior doesn't make sense to you, it is because you are missing part of their context. It's that simple. So a lot of times when we have kind of the high anthropology view that I've been talking about for a few weeks, we think that everyone should behave according to the standard that we have imaginary in our lives that we can't really live up to. We're not able then to have compassion upon them, and we don't think about all the things that they are going through. We can't look with compassion upon them and love them like Jesus, it says, looked upon the people like sheep without a shepherd, right, and has compassion upon them. The word compassion, literally in the Latin, right? Come, anytime there's a C-O-M at the beginning, means with, right? And passion means suffer. It literally means suffer with. I'm not a Latin expert. I don't know Latin, but there's the two words, right? Suffer with or be together with someone in the midst of their suffering. And what happens in this story, right, is that Jesus brings the promise of freedom to all. All. To all, but we have to renounce our old ways and claims. That includes the Pharisees and the scribes, these ones who want to prove, they want to prove and self justify themselves over and above this woman, this sinner. And so Jesus is telling them stop the constant judgment, because their constant judgment is about self righteousness and self betterment. And the hard part is that we often see the Pharisees and scribes in ourselves because we want someone to be worse than us. We want someone like, well, at least I'm not as bad as that guy, right? And so we do that in our minds. At least I haven't killed anyone, we might say. And self-compassion is the ability to acknowledge that we are all in the same boat. And Jesus to the woman, right, his words, to the adulterous woman, are sin no more. Freedom is given to her as well, not only the freedom of her life in this case, but Jesus' words of freedom to her involve a change in her life, a turning around. Both parties need to change in this case. In Ephesians 4 that I read earlier today, Paul says it very simply. Be kind, compassionate, and forgiving to each other, right? We often, this is a VBS verse many years. Be kind, compassionate, and forgiving to each other in the same way God forgave you in Christ. In other words, the only way in which you can be kind and compassionate and forgiving is when you understand how much Christ has forgiven you. How there is no reaching to God that you could have done on your own But rather, Jesus came to you and accepted you and loves you. And in that same way, then we are called to love others. That's what it means to love our neighbor as ourselves. And friends, our lack of compassion with others is often really a picture of ourselves. I don't know if this resonates with you, but the people who bother me most, deep in the recesses of my mind, are the people who look most like me. It's like looking in a mirror and seeing all of my insecurities right there in front of me. David Zoll says it this way, he says, A high anthropology breeds perfectionism, anxiety, and burnout in our lives. A high anthropology breeds perfectionism, anxiety, and burnout in our lives. That's kind of that general guilt that we've talked about. And he says that same anthropology breeds isolation and confusion and resentment in our relationships with others. So we extend then that feeling that we have about being never enough to all others, thinking they should then also feel that way, and it cuts off our relationships from each other. When we have too high of a view of ourselves or what others should constantly be living up to in our pretend imaginary framework for them, it cuts us off from real and true relationships with one another. He says, on the other hand, a low anthropology forges sympathy, clarity, and reconciliation out of the bonds of finitude and limitation. In other words, we are able to understand and to cooperate and to love and to work together and to reconcile when we mutually understand that all of us is in need of grace. And when we are genuinely compassionate, that is where friendship is formed. There is a way out of the guilt. This co-suffering, this compassion that we have with each other, forges friendship. Zalt writes, The most lasting and transformative bonds between individuals are almost always sealed through weakness rather than strength, suffering rather than flourishing, vulnerability rather than nobility. In other words, you make friends in the trenches. For those who are veterans or have gone through battle together, there is something that those folks know who have gone through it and been in the trenches together that forges relationship and friendship unlike most things. In the same way, when you have been through something really hard with someone, there is a relationship that is formed. It might be a really, really difficult project or relationship at work that went for many years that all of a sudden, through that time, you got through something together. It could be something in your family life that you got through something together. It could be a friend in college who you walk through a really difficult time with in their lives, and something happens that forges that friendship in the trenches. Zoll writes, in its purest form, friendship is the term we use to describe a non-performative relationship. Hear those words, a non-performative relationship. He writes, Alcoholics Anonymous is a community bound together by shared weakness and is therefore a real community, a transformative one. Good churches sometimes function similarly. This community of shared weakness that he talks about in the 12-step group, specifically in Alcoholics Anonymous when he talks about it, is that there is a starting point for everyone who comes to that meeting and it is confession. There is a confession. It's an understanding of limitation. It is, I am here because I cannot do this alone. In the case of Al-Anon, I can't be sober alone. And yet in that space, there is a shared friendship and a community that happens just by that confession together. Friends, there's something powerful to me about how we come to the table every week. Because every week that we come to the table, we are acknowledging, I can't save myself. I need the grace of Jesus. And every time we confess our sins before coming to the table, our Presbyterian brothers and sisters, they put their confession right at the beginning of worship, like where the call to worship is in worship, so that we understand like, hey, we're all here on the same plane when we walk in, and we need to confess our sins before God and each other. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians, that power is made perfect in weakness. Power is made perfect in weakness. Friends, this is the anti-American sentiment. We are bonded in weakness. That walking the Christian life, that following Jesus is a required dependency upon God and on one another. In the Christian life, there is no going it alone. You were created for dependence. Dependence on God and dependence on others. No one, no matter how they look, has it all together on their own. So rather than running from your need of God and your need of others, run to them. And there, you too will find freedom. Amen.